Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Sioux City Journal newspaper dated Wednesday, March the 1st, and I'm your reader, Kevin Boucher. Headline, Council Approves 10-Year Garbage Agreement with Bi-Weekly Recycling. And this first article was written by reporter Dolly Butts. The Sioux City Council, in a split decision this past Monday, approved a new 10-year agreement between the city and Gill Hauling Incorporated for solid waste collection, recycling, and disposal services. The agreement will make curbside recycling pickup a bi-weekly event. Mayor Pro Tem Dan Moore motioned before the agreement was approved to not mandate 95-gallon recycling containers and to allow the city to reevaluate bi-weekly recycling at the end of the agreement's first year. Now, before the vote, Councilwoman Julie Schnorr said bi-weekly recycling will help the city go greener. We can just reduce the number of trips that these trucks make over our city streets. Less fuel. It just makes sense to go one step greener, she said. Both the amendment and the agreement were approved on a vote of 4-1. to one. Mayor Bob Scott cast the lone no vote, stating that the agreement is too long and that he thinks it's unfair to tie future councils to a long 10-year contract. The new agreement, which was approved this past Monday, contains a floor consumer price index adjustment of 3% to a ceiling consumer price index adjustment of 5% for the length of the 10-year agreement. All service locations within the agreement will receive new solid waste and recycling containers. A 95-gallon solid waste container and a 95-gallon recycling container with weekly solid waste collection and bi-weekly recycling collection will cost households $17.30 a month, beginning July the 1st. An additional solid waste container will cost $4.25 a month, and residents can opt for two 65-gallon containers for only $16 a month one of those for solid waste, and one of those for recycling. And we'll accommodate to any options that folks need. And that's a quote from Sean McDowell of Gill Hauling, who noted that 35-gallon containers would be available to accommodate special circumstances. If we are talking less waste from a house and we want to give them the smaller containers, then our disposal rate is down. So, if they need a smaller container, it's more advantageous for us to do. Residents will have a two-month window, March and April, to make changes to their container selection. If you don't call, you're going to get what you already have based on your base level. We're going to open it up by phone and email, McDowell said. And the headline, Siouxland Man is Looking for the Public's Health to catch your, uh, capture a person wanted by a fugitive task force. And this article was written by reporter Dolly Butts. The United States Marshal Service Northern Iowa Fugitive Task Force is seeking the following person. Travis Barnes, 31. He is 5 feet 7 inches tall and weighs 205 pounds. 
Barnes is wanted on an arrest warrant for parole violation. He is on parole for a conviction of possession with intent to distribute methamphetamine. Anyone with information can call 712-252-0211. Once again, that telephone number is 712-252-0211. Headline, Sioux City Mom Gets Probation for Injuring Her Infant. And this article was written by reporter Nick Hytrek. A Sioux City woman who injured her infant son by throwing him at a hospital crib was placed on probation on Monday. Megan James, 35, pleaded guilty in Woodbury County District Court to child endangerment resulting in bodily injury. Citing, in part, James's lack of previous criminal history and her ongoing mental health treatment, District Judge Jeffrey Neary suspended a five-month prison sentence and placed James on two years probation. Neary said James had successfully complied with obligations in an accompanying case filed on the child's behalf in juvenile court. James gave birth to the boy on November 15th 2019 at Unity Point Health, St. Luke's. Two days later, the boy suffered skull fractures while in the care of James, who was alone in her hospital room at the time. Hospital staff were suspicious of the injuries and notified authorities. After providing several explanations for her son's injuries, James told police detectives she had become frustrated while attempting to breastfeed him and that she had a migraine and wanted him to stop crying. James did finally admit to police to throwing the infant who hit his head on the crib and then on the floor, court documents said. The baby was transferred to Children's Hospital in Omaha for treatment. James told Neary on Monday that the child and her two older children are in the father's custody and that she has visitation privileges. Her attorney, Billy Ordair, told Neary that steps toward reunification of the family are ongoing. Headline, three Sioux City middle schools are getting new cooling units in a $1.55 million project, and this article was written by reporter Caitlin Yamata. The Sioux City Community School District this past Monday approved a $1.55 million project to replace the chillers at North, East, and West Middle Schools. The three current school chillers are approximately 20 years old and are original to the buildings when they were built or remodeled. That's according to the board packet. The new coolers will be high-efficiency units and provide better cooling and humidity control, according to the packet. Tim Paul, Building Services Director, said the chillers are being purchased directly from Train, a manufacturing company, through a pre-negotiated state bid, and they will be installed by contractors. Paul said there is a one-year lead time on ordering chillers, and he said this is a direct swap-out, so they will be able to install them either next summer or the fall of 2024. Headline, City Council Tries to Calm Property Tax Levy Flap, and this article 
was written by reporter Dolly Butts. Sioux City Council members recently sought to reassure homeowners on Monday that they are trying to keep their property tax levy as steady as possible. City Councilman Alex Waters expressed frustration over a state law that requires cities to publish a maximum levy notice in advance of their final proposed budget hearing notice. Councilman Alex Waters also expressed frustration, saying that it isn't a property tax levy that they're proposing, but an extension. City staff plan on presenting the final budget to the council for approval on April the 17th. He says, this is probably one of the most frustrating things that I've ever dealt with as far as social media and anything that we pass in the city, Waters said. We have to publish the maximum that we can possibly charge for a tax levy. That doesn't say that we plan or have ever had any intention of raising that levy to that amount. The notice garnered more than 127 comments. On the Sioux City Police Department's Facebook page, many of them from residents expressing outrage over what they thought was a proposed 21% increase in the property tax levy for fiscal year 2024, which begins on July 1st. Two men who didn't provide their full names spoke out against a property tax increase during the meeting. One of the men, who identified himself only as Jesse, said that his property taxes have almost doubled since he bought his home 25 years ago. We've had 200% inflation since 1980. We have 80% of the population living paycheck to paycheck. And you guys talk about raising taxes like choosing turkey or ham for lunch, he said. I'm a little bit frustrated by this. When does it all end? Sarah Swearingen, who is the budget manager for the city of Sioux City, reiterated that the maximum tax levy is not to exceed that number. Not that they will actually make it that number, but legally it can't go higher than that. She says it does appear a lot more inflated than what it really is. She says, we did propose a flat tax levy this year at our operating hearing, she said, and we're waiting for new values from the state to see where we end up, but we don't anticipate the levy actually moving up much at all. In March 2022, the City Council approved an FY 2023 property tax levy of $15.41, which was up from FY 2022 levy of $14.45 per $100,000 of assessed valuation. And that resulted in property owners seeing an increase of $15 on $100,000 of assessed residential property and an increase of $88 on $100,000 of assessed business property, for example. And that's based on last year's evaluation, Councilwoman Julie Schoner said of the notice, they're saying that if your home is worth $100,000 last year, for example, in this year, with inflation and what's going on, it's worth $120,000. That publication is based on last year's value and this year's expenses, 
So if we were bound to use last year's, because we don't know what this year's are yet, that's how much we would have to raise taxes. Ten years ago, the Iowa legislature took some steps and passed a law to make, or to make reductions to certain property taxes. They also promised what's called so-called backfill to funding cities and towns and counties and schools whose revenue was impacted by those cuts. In FY 2021, the legislature decided to phase out the backfill. The backfill will be completely gone in 2030, and that's according to the Iowa League of Cities. And the headline for this next article from the March 1st edition, Woodbury County Sheriff's Office released details on fatal Friday night shooting. And this article was written by reporter Jared McNett. The Woodbury County Sheriff's Office is currently investigating a Friday night shooting in rural Sergeant Bluff that left one person dead and another in critical condition. According to a press release from Sheriff Chad Sheehan, officers received a call from shots fired at a home along Buchanan Avenue. Deputies arrived on scene and observed an injured person on the floor of the residence. Deputies immediately entered the residence and rescued an 11-year-old boy from inside, the sheriff's office said. Per the department, deputies found a male and female victim, both suffering from gunshot wounds while they were in the process of removing the 11-year-old. The original person observed was suffering from what appeared to be a self-inflicted gunshot wound. The male suspect with the self-inflicted gunshot wound was transported to an Omaha hospital in critical condition, the office said. The female suffering from gunshot wounds was taken to Mercy One in Sioux City, while the male died at the scene. And the headline for this next article, Two Siouxland Fugitives Wanted by the U.S. Marshals Service Are Captured. And this article was written by reporter Dolly Butts. Two Siouxland fugitives who had been on the lam since 2020 are now back behind bars in police custody. That's according to the U.S. Marshals Service Northern Iowa Fugitive Task Force. Philip Pringle, who was wanted by the U.S. Marshals Service for violating his pretrial release, was arrested by the task force on February 13th in Otho, Iowa, which is a city in Webster County near Fort Dodge. Pringle had been on pretrial release for conspiracy to distribute methamphetamine, and he'd been on the run since October of 2020. Duran Medina was arrested on February 21st after a Plymouth County Sheriff's deputy observed him getting out of a vehicle in Akron, Iowa. Medina, who was a who was convicted of being a habitual offender and other crimes in Woodbury County, failed to report back to the Sioux City Residential Treatment Facility as required in September of 2020. And the headline for this next article from the Sioux City Journal newspaper, Lincoln Elementary Student Brings Loaded Handgun to School. And this was reported by reporter Zach Hammock of the Lincoln Journal Star. A fifth grader snuck a loaded gun inside Prescott Elementary School and used it to threaten another student on Friday, 
Lincoln Public School officials said in recounting the events of an unsettling end to a week of classes. Staff learned just after the noon hour on Friday that a fifth grade student flashed a handgun in a backpack at another fifth grader and made a threatening statement while the two were in the hallway, district officials say. The student, who was reportedly threatened, told a teacher who alerted administrators at the school near 20th and South Streets. Staff located the backpack hanging from a coat rack in the hallway and took it to the school office. Police responded and found a loaded handgun inside the backpack, the district said. The Lincoln Police Department has provided no other details of the incident. It's not exactly clear when the threat was made or how much time transpired until the staff was notified. LPS said that it did not at any point resort to a set of protocols used when a security threat arises, such as putting the building on a lockdown, and classes continued as police conducted their investigation. This could have been a very different result, no question about it. And that's a quote from Superintendent Paul Gossman. He said that after the school day, praising the response by staff and law enforcement and the student for reporting the threat. Gossman met with Prescott staff at the school before holding a late afternoon press conference. The ages and the genders of the students involved were not released, and the exact nature of the threat and what may have led up to it, that was not made known. Officials, however, said that they do not believe the gun was pointed directly at the student, nor were any other students threatened. And only a couple of minutes passed from when the threat was reported to when the gun was secured, but a specific timeline was not, um, uh, was not made available Friday. Gossman said only that staff became aware of the threat shortly after the noon hour, adding that officials did not have a specific time on when the threat was made. Classes at Prescott begin at 9 o'clock in the morning. The school district also said in their release that police interviewed both of the students involved and their parents, and the student who brought the firearm will face legal consequences. Headline for this next article, 16-year-old male charged in Sunday morning armed robbery in Lamar's, and this article was written by reporter Earl Horlick. A juvenile male has been charged in the armed robbery at a convenience shop which happened on Sunday morning. At around 8.22 Sunday morning, the 16-year-old entered the Brew Coffee Shop, 346 Plymouth Street Southwest, displaying a handgun to employees. According to the Lamar's Police Department, the suspect allegedly then cut phone lines, threatened and detained employees for 20 minutes before stealing money, liquor, and personal items from them. Police say that the suspect was recovered and stolen items were also was recovered, and so was a replica handgun that was allegedly used in the commission of the crime. Headline, Sioux City Homicide Suspects Bond has been set at $500,000, and this article was written by reporter Nick Hytrek. A Sioux City man charged in a fatal stabbing on Friday has been ordered held on bond of 
$500,000. Magistrate Melinda Wicks ordered the bond and appointed the public defender's office to represent Nathaniel Parker III, 30, who was arrested Saturday on charges of first-degree murder and possession of a controlled substance. A preliminary hearing was scheduled for March the 8th. Parker is suspected of stabbing William Harlan Jr., 48, of Sioux City, who was found suffering from multiple gun or multiple stab wounds Friday night in an apartment building at 414 11th Street. He later died of his wounds at Mercy One Siouxland Medical Center. Parker is accused of stabbing Harland in the chest while the two were riding in a vehicle. According to documents provided by the court, the vehicle pulled up in front of the apartment building and Parker pulled Harlan out of the vehicle and onto the ground. Parker and another man were seen carrying Harlan into an apartment inside the building. Parker was trying to hide in the apartment's bathroom when police arrived, court documents said, and a knife wrapped in a shirt was found hidden above the ceiling tiles in the apartment. During a police interview, according to police, Parker said he did that because he was high on methamphetamine and police found him in possession of 0.85 grams of the illegal substance. That's according to court documents. Headline, Student Loan Forgiveness is being heard in the United States Supreme Court and this article was written by Jessica Gresco of the Associated Press. The Supreme Court heard arguments recently over President Joe Biden's student debt relief plan, which impacts millions of borrowers who could see their loans wiped away or even reduced to nothing. The debt forgiveness plan announced this past August would cancel $10,000 in federal student loan debt for those who make less than $125,000 or households with less than $250,000 of income every year. Pell Grant recipients who typically demonstrate more financial need would get an additional $10,000 in their debts forgiven. The White House says 26 million people have applied for debt relief and 16 million people have already had their relief awarded. The Congressional Budget Office said the program will cost about $400 billion in taxpayer dollars over the next three decades. Now, since the case is in the United States Supreme Court, it'll likely be months before borrowers learn the outcome of the case, but there's a deadline. The U.S. Supreme Court generally issues all of its decisions by the end of June before going on summer break. Whether or not the debt gets canceled, the case's resolution will bring changes. While federal student loan payments are currently paused, that will end 60 days after the case is resolved. And if the case hasn't been resolved by June 30th, payments will start 60 days after that. Headline, Iowa Senate panel spikes CO2 pipeline bill. And this story was written by reporter Caleb McCullough. A proposal to restrict the eminent domain powers of utilities, including carbon capture pipelines, failed its first legislative hurdle in the Iowa Senate this past Monday. 
facing opposition from both carbon pipelines and landowners who are opposed to the creation of these carbon pipelines because they don't want the lines running through their property. The bill was unanimously voted down by a three-member subcommittee. In voting down the bill, Senator Jason Schultz, a Republican from Schleswig, cast doubt on the likelihood of a bill restricting eminent domain powers for pipelines making it out of the legislature this session. I don't believe there's a legislative answer to this, Schultz said in the subcommittee hearing on the bill. Senate File 346 would have blocked carbon capture pipelines, electric transmission lines, and other pipelines from being granted eminent domain authority to take land unless they receive at least two-thirds of the path of their route through voluntary easements. Companies would have been barred from contacting landowners for easement acquisitions without first getting consent of the landowner. It would have heightened land restoration standards in instances where eminent domain is exercised. The restrictions on pipelines would not have applied to companies that have already held their first informational hearing for a permit, exempting all three companies that have filed for permits to build carbon capture pipelines in Iowa. The bill was universally opposed by utilities, pipeline companies, and opponents of CO2 pipelines. Pipeline companies and other utilities said that these rules were too burdensome, while opponents said the restrictions do not go far enough and opposed exempting the three pipeline companies that have filed for a permit already. One of the lawmakers says in an interview he isn't sure of the of the likelihood of another pipeline-related bill to make it out of a subcommittee in the Senate, and he does not think there are enough votes to pass any restrictions in the chamber. He said he was expecting the bill to not move past the committee stage. Headline, Iowa State University to get 169 confiscated baby tarantulas. And this story was written by the Associated Press in Ames, Iowa. Baby tarantulas have invaded Iowa State University. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service donated 169 confiscated tarantulas and offered them to the school in Ames this month. The tarantulas, most of them not much bigger than a fingernail, arrived on Valentine's Day and were carefully unboxed by university's insect zoo staff and student workers. The school said 10 of the tarantulas went to its 17-acre property called Raymond Gardens, and the rest will be raised in the insect zoo until they get bigger. Jenny Mitchell, insect zoo education program coordinator, says that she hopes to keep many of the tarantulas, is up to, is up to half of them, at Iowa State, where they will join other venomous species of spiders and scorpions as permanent zoo residents. The other half will be offered to other zoos when they get big enough. Tarantulas are among many animals trafficked in the illegal pet trading industry. Many animals, such as tarantulas, are collected in the wild and sent to other countries for the pet industry. And when animals are taken out of the wild, it reduces the general population and gene pool, which can lead to the decimation of the species, she said.
Headline. Nebraska ordered to pay $22,000 in attorney's fees to news nonprofit in a fight over public records. And this story was written by reporter Lori Pilger of the Lincoln Journal Star newspaper. A Lincoln judge this week gave the state a deadline to comply with his order to provide the Flatwater Free Press with a new cost estimate to carry out its public records request related to drinking water and nitrates. The Nebraska Department of Environment and Energy previously told the nonprofit news organization that it would have to pay a deposit of $44,000 before the department would start searching five years of emails. Now, this price tag prompted Flatwater to sue in November, and the case went to trial early this month. In the order on February the 14th, Lancaster County District Judge Ryan Post said that while the state of Nebraska does have a law that allows public officials to charge a fee for making records available in certain circumstances, it didn't allow them to charge for anything other than time spent physically redacting. He said Flatwater had a clear right to a cost estimate in compliance with the statute, and the Nebraska Department of Environment and Energy has a clear duty to provide one. In an order late Thursday, the Post said the department still had not provided Flatwater with a new estimate of the expected cost of the copies as he directed in his February the 14th order. That hadn't happened yet as of late Friday afternoon. Post said that he found the requested fees fair and reasonable. At trial, one, uh, one person said the fee included time spent by the staff reviewing and withholding documents under statutory exceptions to disclosure, which isn't authorized by the Public Records Act. The Attorney General's office is expected to appeal this ruling. You are listening to the reading of the Sioux City Journal newspaper, dated Wednesday, March the 1st, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now, let's turn to today's obituaries. Bonnie Collins Marcus, 71, died Tuesday, February 21st. Celebration of life and arrangements are with the Ernest Johnson Funeral Home in Marcus, Iowa. Brian Paul Cox, 76, of Sioux City, formerly of Taconic, passed away on February 20th, 2023 at Whispering Creek Senior Living in Sioux City, Iowa. Arrangements are under the direction of Gosler Funeral Home and Monuments in Anawa. Brian Paul was born July 25, 1946 in Sioux City, the son of Paul and Inez Chapin Cox. He attended Maple Valley High School in Mapleton, Iowa, and graduated with the class of 1964. And after graduation, Brian married Jeanette Strachan and soon after enlisted into the United States Air Force and was stationed in Bermuda from 1965 to 1969 when he was honorably discharged. They had two daughters, Lisa Marie and Andrea Lynn. They later divorced. 
On July 25, 1979, Brian married Cheryl Jansen in Elk Point, South Dakota. They lived in Sloan, Iowa with daughter Shelley until moving to the farm in 1983. Brian was employed at IBP in Dakota City and was an over-the-road truck driver while farming with his dad, and he eventually took over the family farm in 1996. Edward Ernest Lamoureux, 86, of Salix, passed away on Monday, February the 20th, at a hospital in Sioux City. Arrangements are under the direction of Gosler Funeral Home and Monuments, in Anawa, Iowa. He started working for the Iowa State Highway Commission as an engineering aide in the construction department on August 1st, 1956, and then later transferred to the materials department in 1965. He is retired he retired from the Iowa Department of Transportation on June 30th, 1994. He's survived by his wife of 66 years, Dorothy Lamoureux of Salix, three daughters, Vicki and Jerry Ames of Austin, Minnesota, Sherry and Daniel Salmon of Sioux City, and Jody and Jim Clark of Sioux City. He's also survived by grandchildren, Charlene and Lee Ramsey, Stephanie Kerr and Tony, Chad Kerr and Beth, Joey Salmon, Jennifer Myers, Cody and Catherine Clark, Lacey Clark, Mason and Izzy Lamoureux, and he is also survived by Sarah and Jesse Elliott, several great-grandchildren, one great-great-grandchild, brother Larry Mike Lamoureux of Salix, two sisters, Darlene Bunny McCarty of Sergeant Bluff, and Marilee Thielen of North Sioux City. Survives also by sisters-in-law Jean Lamra of Whiting, Iowa, and Paula Lamoureux of Bullhead City, Arizona, and several nieces, nephews, cousins, and other relatives and wonderful friends. And he was preceded in death by his parents, Milford and Leona Lamoureux, parents-in-law, Joseph and Daisy Kane Lucier, son Dennis Lamoureux, brothers Lowell and Bonnie Lamoureux, Robert Lamoureux as well. Jane B. McGinnis, 93, of North Sioux City, passed away peacefully with family by her side on Wednesday, February the 15th, after a battle with dementia. There will be a family gathering sometime this summer in Crested Butte, Colorado, where her remains will be laid to rest next to her husband, Harry McGinnis. Arrangements are with Nelson Berger, Northside Chapel. Jane was born on December 19, 1929, to Paul and Nancy Beacons in Omaha, Nebraska. After graduating from Central High School in Sioux City in 1947, she continued her education and graduated from the University of Colorado. At college, Jane met Laurie Smith and they were married in 1950, going on to have three sons, Chris, Forey, and Cam, 
Their marriage was dissolved in 1975. In 1977, Jane then married Harry McGinnis, and they built a life together until his death in 2013. They first lived in Lincoln, Nebraska, before moving to Okaboji, Iowa, where they both played golf, and she sailed competitively. Wanting to be in a warmer climate, they moved then to Florida so they could continue to play golf year-round. After Florida, they then moved to St. George, Utah, and enjoyed once again the beautiful golf courses of that area. Jane is survived by her family, sons Chris and Julie of Hood River, Oregon, Forrest and Dawn of Crested Butte, and Cam and Melissa of Dakota Dunes. Grandchildren Dylan, Jared, Landon, Kale, Lindsay, and Tanner, and great-grandchildren Bailey, Riley, Eleanor, Dax, and Evergreen. Jane was preceded in death by her husband, Harry, parents Paul and Nancy Beckins, and sister, Tigger Jensen. Memorials may be sent to the Sioux City Arts Center, Sioux City Public Museum, or Morningside College, and asked to donate the funds to the Paul and Nancy Beacons Scholarship Fund. And now turning to the opinion page of the Sioux City Journal, the Wednesday, March 1st edition. Headline, many are criticizing President Biden. This is a letter sent by Robert Vanderweil of Sioux City, Iowa. Many U.S. citizens constantly criticize President Joe Biden because he's too old and they say he's not able to do his job. Well, he traveled to a war zone and met the president and his wife in person. The first president to do so. He is also a brave and a dedicated president. God bless him. And that letter to the editor was written by Robert Vanderweil of Sioux City. And here's another letter to the editor, and it starts out with the headline, Iowa schools have many problems. And this was written by David C. Parsons of Sioux City. The journal's editorial board recently printed an editorial last Sunday under the headline, Iowa schools aren't so bad after all. Unfortunately, as the father of a Davenport, Iowa high school teacher, I must strongly disagree. Let me list behaviors that are occurring in her school. Number one, they no longer waste time disciplining students for language that was once considered obscene and desecrating to our Lord and His Son. Two, since marijuana is legal in Illinois, the students frequently come to school stoned or they get stoned while at school. Three, students well, are you a student if you aren't in school to learn? Students often wander the halls, and they never attend their classes. Four, fighting and bullying are very prevalent among the girls. I repeat, girls. And that letter was written by Donald C. Parsons of Sioux City, Iowa. And here's another letter to the editor begins with the headline, Should the Supervisors Be Allowed to Halt the People's Business? 
This letter to the editor uh, was written by William F. Burroughs. At the behest of the chair, on January 31st, in the middle of the budget process, the Woodbury County Board of Supervisors voted to give themselves a day off with pay on February 21st. Should the supervisors be allowed to halt the people's business because the chair said that he can't be there that day? I think not. And again, that letter was submitted by resident William F. Burroughs. And the next letter to the editor begins with this headline. I am a product of the greatest generation. Letter written by John Stetson of Sioux City. And he writes, I am a product of the greatest generation. I'm a baby boomer. I am aware the greatest generation sacrificed so much that we, their children, could have a fair, free, and a decent chance of a better life than they had. And as we, the baby boomers age and enter into the twilight of our lives, We, too, wish the same for our children and grandchildren. I'm afraid now that a madness has infected a portion of our population where truth, the rule of law, and common decency are vanishing and being replaced with lies, cheating, stealing, and the destruction of democracy as we know it. A few elected unhinged government representatives seem to want to destroy everything that so many have sacrificed for, and no one does anything to stop them. If I lose Social Security, Veterans Benefits, Medicare, or any other current benefit because the unhinged officials destroy it all, so be it. I've lived my life, and if the unhinged are not stopped, the U.S. will suffer the same fate as all of the history's great empires, and we will destroy ourselves from within. And that letter was written by John Stetson of Sioux City, Iowa. And uh, continuing now with the editorial page of the Sioux City Journal, here's another uh, from a syndicated columnist. His name is David Hopkins. And uh, his column begins with the headline, Why America's Schools Are Getting More Political. And he writes, In the United States, politics, domestic issues, tend to fall into one of two categories, economic or cultural. But it's getting harder these days to decide where education belongs. That's because Democrats and Republicans are talking about the issue differently. And their rhetorical dissimilarity shows how each party has adopted its own view of class conflict. I'll start with the Democrats. For most Democrats, education has always been largely about dollars and cents. And the party's current policy proposals emphasize increased government funding to improve public schools' facilities and resources, expand pre-K programs, and increase college-level affordability. President Joe Biden's plan to forgive certain federal student loan debts announced shortly before 
the 2022 midterms, but now facing multiple legal challenges, represents a benefit directed toward a specific population, current students and younger graduates that Democratic leaders view as an important constituency motivated by material self-interest. Republicans, in contrast, have become more likely to regard education as a part of a larger cultural conflict. They describe public schools and universities as liberal-dominated environments that need to be prevented from forcing their ideological vision on U.S. society. Former President Donald Trump introduced an education reform proposal just last month that includes cuts in federal funding for schools that teach critical race theory, gender ideology, or other inappropriate racial, sexual, or political content. A certification program for teachers who embrace patriotic values and a plan to allow parents the right to elect the principal of their children's school. Our public schools have been taken over by the radical left maniacs. And that's a quote from Donald Trump. Trump's recent focus on this issue seems like a response to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, a potential rival for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination, who has made the state's educational system a primary target in his war on wokeness. DeSantis has enacted a series of laws in Florida premised on his belief that the state's public schools and universities have become focused on the imposition of trendy, left-wing ideologies, especially on topics such as race and gender. Both of the parties' ways of discussing American education reflect a larger difference in how they perceive social relations in America. For Democrats, the class system is defined by inequality of wealth and government-funded education programs are a way of the, for the economically disadvantaged to climb the ladder of success. And in his State of the Union address last week, Biden vowed to make the educational system, quote, an affordable ticket to the middle class. In the radical left's America, our children are taught to hate one another on account of their race, but not to love one another or our great country. And that is an exact quote from Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders in her State of the Union response. Neither party's vision consistently prevails over the other. The growing salience of cultural concerns has led white Americans without a college degree to support Republican candidates by a margin of two to one in recent elections. And that's according to a lot of the data for the actually for the last two elections. Republican voters also hold increasingly negative opinions of higher education in this country. Yet rates of educational attainment continue to rise as Americans perceive that staying in school will provide them with a greater economic return after they graduate. And politicians who propose cuts to education spending 
risk facing a popular backlash, even in conservative constituencies. In fact, despite their very sharp criticism of many, many public educators in the higher education system, both Ron DeSantis and Sarah Huckabee Sanders have recently proposed increasing teacher salaries and other education funding in their home states. And the struggle over how to frame education policy will continue as long as voters see some truth in how both parties view the class divide in America. Hopkins is an associate professor of political science at Boston College, and he's also a columnist for Bloomberg. And again, that was a columnist written by David Hopkins. And now turning to uh, sports from the Sioux City Journal, uh, the latest game uh, in big-time college basketball. The Iowa Hawkeyes, the men's basketball team, defeated Michigan State on Saturday, and it was a high-scoring affair, 112-106. to 106. Iowa's now uh, record is 18-11. They're seventh in the Big Ten, while the Michigan State Spartans' record is 17 wins, and 11 losses. In fact, many are saying it was an overtime victory that was miraculous by the Iowa basketball team. In fact, they uh, were down by 13 points at one time during the game, but they came back. Iowa star Chris Murray had 20 of his 26 points in the second half and in the overtime periods. Tony Perkins scored 19 of his 24 points in that same time period. And in the, uh, that victory, uh, forward Chris Murray for Iowa led the team. He had 26 points. Guard Tony Perkins was next for Iowa with 24 points. And Peyton Sanford had 22 points in the Iowa victory. Other players on the scoreboard, uh, Aaron Eulis had 5. Connor McCaffrey had 10 points. And Flip Rebraca had 18 points in the victory. And again, in overtime, the Iowa Hawkeyes won on Saturday. They are now 7th place in the Big Ten Conference. And again, their uh, record in the conference is 10 wins and 8 losses. Overall, Iowa has a record of 18 and 11. And the Saturday game was played at Carver Arena in Iowa. In Big 12 play, the Iowa State Cyclones, uh, well, they lost on Saturday. To the Oklahoma Sooners, final score 61 to 50, Oklahoma over the Iowa State Cyclones. Iowa State's record is now 17 wins and 11 losses, and they stand. Uh, let's see, they are sixth place in the Big 12 Conference. For the Cyclones, uh, Jacob Groves led the team in scoring with 16 points, with uh, Grant Sherfield, a guard. Uh, next, with 10 points for the uh, loss. And turning back to news from the Sioux City Journal, police are investigating a fatal stabbing which took place on Friday, February 25th. According to a release from the Sioux City Police Department, officers and medical personnel were dispatched to 414 11th Street at 9.48 p.m. for stabbing. Once they got there, paramedics, uh, the release says the officers and medical personnel, found an adult male suffering from multiple stab wounds. 
The release says the victim was then immediately treated and transported to Mercy One, where he later succumbed to his injuries. Per the Sioux City Police Department report, investigators are considering the incident a homicide, and the investigation is ongoing. The name of the victim was not released in this special report. Headline, Changes are coming to Sioux City's mass transit, and this oracle was written by various members of the staff of the Sioux City Journal. The changes are coming as follows. Number 5, Riverside. Service will change from Ross to Rebecca Street to better serve Liberty, uh, Liberty Elementary School. Number 7, Council Oaks. The route will become bi-directional running both out and back along West 4th Street and Riverside Boulevard. This will improve trip times and it will eliminate overlap with Route 5 Riverside on West 19th Street. And number 9, South Sioux City, proposes only minimal changes. The westbound service on 9th Street would be rerouted to Arbor Drive in order to access Harney Elementary School. If you have any questions about the route changes, simply call the Sioux City Transit Dispatch Office, 712-279-6404. Again, Sioux City Transit, call 712-279-6404. Headline, Iowa House Republicans are pushing to change gender-affirming care for minors. And this article was written by Caleb McCullough. Iowa House Republicans may introduce legislation that would ban gender-affirming care for transgender minors, House Speaker Pat Grassley told reporters on Thursday. This comment came as the House Government Oversight Committee heard testimony from doctors that deal with transgender patients who said providing gender-affirming care to minors is a long, methodical, and deeply personalized process that involves multiple doctors and the consent of parents. And based on some of the information that we've shared with us, I, I think that there could be an expectation of seeing legislation potentially moving forward Grassley said before the hearing on Thursday, but obviously we want to see how that hearing plays itself out. In a letter to state governors in 2021, the American Medical Association urged against limiting the practice. And that does it for today's reading of the Sioux City Journal newspaper dated Wednesday, March the 1st. I'm your reader, Kevin Boucher. And you can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. Thanks for listening.